Welcome to the Biblical Editorial Review. Here we will discuss the contrast between two worldviews, one being biblical and the other being worldly. How does a follower of Christ distinguish between the two? And now here's your host. Hello, and welcome to the Biblical Editorial Review. I am your host, Cleaver Rose. I want to thank each and every one of you to be part of this wonderful radio experience. This week, and a couple of weeks before the midterm lessons, I want to talk to you about certain things that is going on with our country, but also the things that you probably never know until this present day. You know, at first, I want to really come to grips on what is really entailed on what we are facing. You know, the last few weeks, we've been looking at the, what's going on with Brett Kavanaugh. And other things is going on with different people within different party lines. And I want to say um, a lot of people want uh, of blacks or other ethnic groups that is not generally Caucasian to side up with the Democrats, which I want to tell you something. I would never would side up for a Democrat ever. And that's why this need to be exposed about their whole behavior. The Democrats right now are in shambles. They are losing it. And the far left are doing so many things that's so apoplectic to the point of no return. If you get to that point trying to destroy somebody's character because you don't like them for who they are, you're going to try to do everything you can to destroy the person in general. And a lot of the things have to do with so many things to the point of losing who you are as a person to also lose the lose yourself as the person in general. And I'm going to tell you something that's really kind to get everything into a perspective that needs to be said. You know, we need to expose people and we need to expose them very quickly. But how do you want to expose someone if you don't know the history of them? How are you going to expose certain things about them? Um, these things happen very, very quickly. And a lot of them have to deal with so many things that has to do with the common denominator of everything. Now, I'm going to tell you something that no one never really come to grips about because a lot of the things that we do talk about on the Biblical Editorial Review comes to what we expose and why people don't talk about these things. And we need to go ahead and talk about what's going on with, with Lyndon B. Johnson. Now, why am I bringing this out about Lyndon B. Johnson? Because Lyndon B. Johnson is the, is the pivot point. One of the pivotal points that lead African-Americans and other ethnic groups to go ahead and side up with the progressive Democrats or socialist Democrats or any kind of Democrat that is against God. How come we have to come to all these grips about these things? Well, two reasons and twofold of the reason. One reason is because somebody needs to tell the truth. And that truth needs to be told in lots of uh, ways that need to be told. And secondly, it had to be explained and reasoned and contributed to 
give you something to understand. What I mean by convoluted means that people are trying to bring in their own truth, but they don't know the truth about the whole thing. This is a problem. This is the issues that we have to deal with every time. Why? Because someone has to come to this common denominator of why things happen. And I believe for a fact with all my heart, this election cycle that we're experiencing right now is the pivot point of everything. A lot of people keep asking me, well, how come Cleveland, why are you not on Facebook or Twitter like you used to? On these issues like this. Well, because Twitter, Facebook, and other entities like that is trying to shut this truth down on these bare bone facts that you need to be taught how to understand. These things need to be taught for you to have a general idea of why you need to be taught. And that understanding comes to a, a, a comes with a price. And that price is something that we need to really come in grips about. So that's why it's really a disservice to really not tell you the truth about these things that you need to understand. So you, as the listener, will get the understanding that's not coming from my opinion, but from someone who study, view it, research it, and come to a general conclusion why. You probably know the person we we're about to talk about here that have brought this truth into this Russia, and here is the Sesame Zuzu. He wrote a did many, many documentaries, especially Obama, and one about Hillary, and he's talking about the death of the nation that is in fears now. He's been in so many uh, different commentaries about the conservative thought, but also... He brings out the truth about things that you never experienced in your whole entire life. Now, the main reason why we want to bring him into this thought is to get you to see something that needs to be exposed. This kind of aspirational thing that needs to be coming into common scenarios have to do with the reasons why we need to go out there and vote. So I want to tell you right now, a lot of things he's about to say is controversial, never even thought about before. And this is a conference that happened recently, recently about what we had to experience. So with no further ado, let's go ahead and go into the broadcast. He's a man of a searching and versatile intellect. He is a man who can bridge cultures and understands history and scholarship and politics and theology and philosophy. My guest this week is an author, a filmmaker, a former policy advisor to Ronald Reagan. Mr. Dinesh D'Souza. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dinesh D'Souza. This American dream is a dream not just of economic opportunity or success, but it's ultimately a dream where you can be the architect of your own destiny. I grew up in a different world, actually a world without America. And although I grew up without a phone, without television, uh, without hot water, uh, we had a car, but if you looked down the floor of our car, you could see the ground. He's been described as an influential conservative thinker. 
He's a best-selling author, political commentator, and filmmaker. The great man, Dinesh D'Souza, a patriotic man. No longer would I say that I live in a rarefied world of intellectual debate. I've seen the upside of America, and I've seen the downside of America. But at the end of the day, I wouldn't trade the United States for any other country. At the end of the day, my enthusiasm for American government may have dimmed, but my enthusiasm for this country burns brighter than ever. Thank you very much. I guess I missed my cue and rushed the stage. <laughs> but um, very nice introduction. I was probably the only guy listening to it and watching it going, more, more, more. <laughs> I, um, I want to make sure we got some time for questions. And so I'm going to be covering some controversial material. Um, and so in my opening remarks, I will try to adopt the motto that King Henry VIII used with one of his wives. He said, I won't keep you too long. Um, now, um, I'm very happy to be here at Texas State. Um, I think you might have heard my wife is an alumnus, class of 88. You want to say hi? <laughs> So I'm particularly excited to be here. Uh, from my point of view, she's the most important alumnus who went to Texas State. I'll actually be talking a little bit about the second most important Texas State grad, uh, namely one Lyndon Baines Johnson. Um, and, um, and the reason I want to talk about LBJ is not just because I like to kind of slam the hometown favorite, uh, enjoyable though that might be, uh, but it's also because um, LBJ is a kind of metaphor for something much bigger that's going on, not just in American politics, but also in American culture. Uh, to give you a, a brief idea of what I mean, right now, this very debate about LBJ and the Civil Rights Act, and did the two parties switch sides, and was Abraham Lincoln a progressive, uh, and is the Republican Party the party of racism? Uh, all of this is reverberating uh, right now in public in the head of one Kanye West. <laughs> um, uh, Kanye is sort of like one of these guys who tried to come out of the closet uh, politically, uh, and uh, his fellows who are in the closet are trying to pull him back in. And so there's a kind of debate going on about who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Uh, and this is a very important debate. It, it completely transcends Trump. It transcends the immediate politics. It's something that actually has more to do with what you learn in your textbooks uh, and the great narrative of American history that is embedded in our head. Uh, it's out of that narrative that we get our ideas of, of right and wrong. Uh, who, are the, um, who are the villains and who are the heroes? Uh, every time you see something on the History Channel about the Civil Rights Movement, there is a presumed narrative behind that. Uh, and it's that narrative that I'm going to call into question. Uh, and LBJ is my kind of lever, my entry point to do that. Now, 
Many of you know that, that LBJ uh, went to Howard University and gave a very famous speech, which became, you could call it, the moral argument for affirmative action. LBJ basically said, uh, you can't take a guy who has been hobbled by chains, who has been held back for years, who has been discriminated and segregated uh, and earlier lynched uh, and treated badly and put him at the starting line along with everybody else and expect him to compete effectively. And what LBJ was suggesting is that there is a need for race-based preferences because some bad guys have been discriminating and mistreating blacks for many, many years. Now, scholars uniformly, progressive scholars in particular, uniformly celebrate this as a, a marvelous, eloquent uh, defense uh, of affirmative action. But it never occurs to anyone, or almost anyone, to ask this question. When LBJ was talking about blacks being humiliated, segregated, discriminated against, he never raised the question, who did that? And in fact, he never raised an even more important question, what was his actual role in doing that? LBJ, after all, was certainly in his younger career, an outspoken racist. Uh, we now know, thanks to the um, Kennedy Files, a fact that has almost stunned the historical community into silence, that LBJ was very likely a member of the Ku Klux Klan. An FBI agent named William Brannigan had documented proof, uh, although he does not name his source, uh, this agent, a very experienced agent, that LBJ was in the KKK. Now, this is not reported in any of the LBJ biographies. Uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin doesn't mention it. Robert Caro doesn't mention it. Even though he'd been following LBJ, you could almost call it day-to-day, -day, in a multi-volume uh, heralded biography. Uh, this came as a bolt from the blue. But it's really not a surprise at all, because being in the KKK is completely consistent with LBJ's earlier career. He was part of the southern block of Dixiecrat segregationists that uh, voted uh, to uphold segregation policies in the South, and not just segregation, uh, anti-miscegenation laws, voted to block lynching laws that were being proposed by Republicans, and this is LBJ's career. And by the way, this is not really open to dispute. Uh, progressive scholars admit this. LBJ was a racist. Here, however, is where things get really interesting, because the progressive narrative now works to try to rehabilitate LBJ. After all, this is the LBJ who pushed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and so we, we hear it implied that LBJ underwent a sort of magnificent conversion. Here was a guy we hear who sort of was, was a backwoods bigot, but he, he transcended that past. He became somebody who um, uh, underwent a moral transformation, a kind of arc of justice, you might say. He flip-flopped. He did this volt-fass. And uh, that's why he championed the Civil Rights Act. Why else would he? Why else would he? Now, 
I begin by noting that this notion that LBJ underwent a moral transformation is completely refuted by the actual way that LBJ talked and behaved. And I want to give two examples of this. I could give a dozen. In fact, I do give a dozen in a forthcoming book of mine. Uh, but I'm going to give just two here. This is a conversation between LBJ and Richard Russell. Richard Russell was LBJ's mentor, Southern segregationist Democrat. And LBJ says to Richard Russell, basically, um, the niggers. And you'll have to pardon my language. I'm going to use it a couple of times in my talk. Notice this is not my language. This is LBJ. Are getting very uppity. Very uppity. And he says, we got to do something about this. We got to give him a little something, but not enough to make a difference. And he's cajoling Richard Russell to join him in moving from a staunch segregationist position to a support for an earlier civil rights bill. This is before the Civil Rights Act of 64. But notice the language that he uses and notice the argument he makes. His argument is not, I've undergone a conversion, Richard, you need to see the light too. No, it's that I'm making a tactical move here to deal with some people who are getting, quote, uppity. This is LBJ. Now, you might say, well, that's in the 50s, uh, before the Civil Rights Act uh, of 1964, and therefore I now want to fast forward to 1965. This is the year after the Civil Rights Act. And now I'm quoting from Robert Caro's biography of LBJ, a conversation between LBJ and his own chauffeur, a guy named Robert Parker. LBJ says to Parker, would you like me to call you chief or nigger? Parker says, why don't you call me my name? And LBJ says, listen up, nigger. As long as you're black, which you're going to be black every single day of your life, I'll call you what I goddamn want to call you. He goes, you better get used to it, nigger. Just act as if you are a piece of furniture, end quote. LBJ. Now, I, I mentioned this not to shock you. That, from LBJ's point of view, there was nothing shocking. This was the way he was. Um, but I, I highlight the date because Honestly, if a man becomes, undergoes a conversion and becomes a champion of a landmark civil rights piece of legislation, you would not expect them to keep talking like this. It's kind of like if a, if a guy, let's say, has a born-again experience, becomes a Christian, you expect them to speak differently, act differently, have a different set of values. Here's the point. People who undergo conversions usually give some evidence of it. When Whitaker Chambers, uh, by the way, a famous uh, figure of the 20th century, used to be a pro-Soviet, a communist, was actually a spy for the Soviet Union. When Whitaker Chambers became an anti-communist, he wrote a massively important book called Witness, describing his wrenching conversion, how difficult it was, how, 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 how it lost him all his friends. Uh, now, with LBJ, you have none of this. If LBJ underwent a conversion, he never told a soul. There's not a single statement in which LBJ even says, I changed my mind. I became a different person. It just, this is the dog that didn't bark. Didn't bark. Now, 
All of this to me suggests that LBJ underwent no conversion. But it still remains for me to explain why would somebody who underwent no conversion still champion the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Before I get there, I want to point out that this conversion of LBJ is of vital political importance to the left, to the progressives. Why? Because for the progressives, well, first of all, the three major progressives of the 20th century are Woodrow Wilson, FDR, LBJ. Woodrow Wilson was, again, quite likely in the Ku Klux Klan. We do know that his screening of a pro-KKK movie in the White House led to a massive nationwide revival of the Klan. It's often not pointed out that the Ku Klux Klan had gone defunct in the 1870s. There was no KKK. The KKK came back thanks to Woodrow Wilson and it spread from Maine to California. The old Klan was in only nine states. Woodrow Wilson did that. Now, it may sound funny for me to keep referring to these major figures being in the Klan. I do want to point out that if we were going through the Democratic Party, I would have to tell you that Woodrow Wilson was in the Klan, Harry Truman was in the Klan, and LBJ was in the Klan. Supreme Court justices like Hugo Black were longtime members, active members of the Klan. I mention this because there is nothing equivalent on the Republican side. Every time you keep hearing about David Duke, oh, what about David Duke? Well, here's the one guy who's excommunicate in the Republican Party. If you made a list of all the grand wizards, imperial dragons, cyclopses, local heads of the KKK over 100 years, I assure you that 99% of them were Democrats. Democrats. This is a fact. So, for progressives, as they look at, they've kind of become uneasy about Wilson. Uh, for reasons that I, I may or may not get to today, they're very uneasy about FDR, not only for interning the Japanese, but it's now coming to light that FDR was a, a, a fan of Mussolini. Uh, he sent members of his brain trust to fascist Italy to bring fascist ideas to America. Uh, FDR has a very checkered history. In fact, if I may point something out to you about FDR, and then I'm going to get back to LBJ. Um, the whole block of Dixiecrat racists went to FDR, all Democrats, by the way, and FDR goes, I need your support for the New Deal. And they go on two conditions. Number one, we have to design the New Deal to cut out blacks. Now, we can't say blacks, so let's exclude agricultural labor and domestic service, which happen to be the two professions in which blacks are heavily occupied, let's exclude them from Social Security. Let's exclude them from New Deal benefits. FDR agreed. In fact, that's how the programs were written. Demand number two. The Dixiecrats said to FDR, you must also agree to block all anti-lynching laws. Think about this. To block all anti-lynching laws. FDR agreed again, and worked behind the scenes to suppress anti-lynching legislation with the help of Northern Democrats, Northern Democrats. This is very important again because, as you know, in the progressive narrative, there are the following villains. America's to blame, the South is to blame, the white man is to blame, the North is always exempt. 
And interestingly, the Democratic Party is never mentioned. But all of this is a little bit of a scam. America's to blame? I mean, America doesn't do anything. Some Americans do things and other Americans fight them. So we have to get right to who are the actual bad guys. Now, let me turn to the progressive narrative itself. The progressive narrative goes sort of like this. Yes, it may be true that the Democratic Party was the party of slavery. This is usually said sort of in a mumble. You know, the Democratic Party was the party of slavery. Um, <laughs> the, the extent of this, by the way, is, is never mentioned. And the extent of this is vast. By what this I mean, uh, in 1860, the year before the Civil War, no Republican owned a slave. Now notice I'm not saying no Republican leader owned a slave. I'm saying no Republican in the United States owned a slave. And this is really important because when I speak on campuses, very often some, you know, professor of romance languages at Bowdoin College will take me on. He goes, Dinesh, your talk is just a tad simplistic. You know, you're, you're, you seem to be pointing the finger at the Democratic Party, but there's a lot of blame to go around. And, and part of the reason I, I point these facts out is there is not a lot of blame to go around. Um, now, the beauty of my statement about the Democratic Party and the slaves is this. There were four million slaves in 1860, and I'm saying that every one of them was owned by a Democrat. And this is a beautifully scientific statement because it's so refutable. All you have to do is give me the names of three Republicans who own slaves, and I would have to take it back. But let me tell you that in the year and a half since I've made this statement, no successful counterexample has ever been mentioned. About six months ago, a PhD student wrote me. He goes, Dinesh, I think I got you. I think I got you. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant inherited a slave, a solitary slave, on his wife's side. And I said, um, you know, buddy, that's, um, that's a, kind of almost a touche, I'd have to call it, because at the time that this happened, Ulysses S. Grant was a Democrat. <laughs> Only later did he move into the Republican column. So, so the progressive narrative is, has to admit, when pressed against the wall um, by, by people who know their stuff, the Democratic Party was the party of slavery. The Democratic Party was, yes, the party of segregation. And once again, let's be really clear, there's not a lot of blame to go around. Every segregation law in the South, without exception, in all those decades from the 1890s to the 1960s, every single law in every single state was passed by a Democratic legislature, signed by a Democratic governor, and enforced by Democratic officials. There is no exception to this rule. And then the Democrats have the honor of having started twice the Ku Klux Klan and made it an instrument of racial terror, actually very similar to the Nazi brown shirts. I say this because uh, even though I appear to be throwing out an analogy, I'm really not. In the 1920s, Americans who went back and forth uh, between, let's say, Mussolini's Italy in the 20s or Nazi Germany in the 30s and came to America would notice that on both sides of the pond, you've got similar organizations. Over here, the brown shirts. Notice that they're like into costumes, just like the Klan. <laughs> Number two. Both groups have a membership of between two to three million. 
uh, large organizations, both groups are into racial terrorism. Both groups pick on a vulnerable minority, in the Nazi case, Jews, in the KKK, blacks. And finally, both groups are not random, chaotic, vigilante groups. They are the organized military wing of a political party. Over here, the Nazi party, and over here, the American Democratic Party. So this is the history. This history by itself is crushing because every time you have claims of racism, you'd have to always point the finger at the Democrats who did it. And so the progressives and the Democrats, closely allied at the hip right now, they realized we have to rewrite this story. We need to come up with a narrative that gets us off the hook. And so the narrative has several components, and I'm just going to hit them one by one. The first component is that the two parties switch sides. They traded platforms. Basically, the Republicans became Democrats, and the Democrats became Republicans. Now, I have to admit, for anyone who's not born yesterday, on the face of it, this is implausible. This would be like if I came to you and with a straight face I said, sometime in 1963, the cops all became robbers. And the robbers all became cops. They traded sides. You'd be like, what? How would that happen? Right? How would the two parties trade sides? Have they traded sides? Let's test that concept for a moment. Abraham Lincoln, in the 1850s, in discussing slavery, says that slavery can be described in a single phrase. You work, I eat. That's what slavery is. It's theft. You're ripping off another man's labor. And Lincoln says that this is not only the definition of slavery, but this is the platform of the Democratic Party in the North and in the South. The defense of this principle, including slavery. And then Lincoln says the Republican Party stands for the opposite. If the Democratic Party is you work, I eat, the Republican Party, Lincoln says, can be summarized in this way. The guy who makes the corn has the right to put the corn in his own mouth. In other words, people have a right to keep the fruit of their labor. So now let's fast forward 150 years, and I ask you, is it not a fact now that the core platform of the Republican Party, circa 2018, is in fact that the guy who makes the corn gets to eat the corn? And is it not a fact that although the, the parties have metamorphosed and there have been changes which I don't deny, even so, in all these years later, would it be wrong to describe the core of the Democratic Party's platform now as summarized by the simple phrase, you work, I eat? Wealth confiscation, wealth redistribution, this guy works but that guy gets stuff, that's still the Democratic Party we know. So the parties haven't actually switched sides. But the argument about the switch is a little more complex than that. It isn't just that the parties flipped. It's that the, it's essentially that blacks became Democrats because they saw that Democrats are the party of civil rights. So blacks did switch. They used to be Republicans. They became Democrats. And the argument goes, the reason they did is their eyes were opened to who is the true friend of blacks now. Now. 
And the second part of that story is that the Republicans now dominate the South. In other words, the South switched. It went from being overwhelmingly Democratic, which it was, to being heavily Republican, which it is. And that was due to racism. In other words, the idea here is Nixon's Southern strategy. Nixon, tricky dick, according to this narrative, went down South and rounded up the racists, the Dixiecrats, the people against civil rights. He whispered in their ear, he campaigned to them, and they became Republicans. The Dixiecrats, racists, became Republicans. And the Republican Party is now defined by this commitment to racism and white supremacy. This is the narrative I now want to zoom in on. And uh, kind of hope that Kanye West is listening here because this will clear up a lot of things in his, in his head. Um, first of all, when, when did blacks switch parties? If the progressive narrative is right, blacks would have to switch parties in the 60s or the 70s. LBJ champions the Civil Rights Act, blacks go, oh wow, he's our friend, and they move over to the Democratic camp. In fact, the black move occurred in the 1930s. So in 1932, when FDR first ran against Herbert Hoover, he only got one-third of the black vote. But literally, four years later, in 1936, FDR got 71% of the black vote. The black vote switched from Republican to Democrat in the 30s. Now, in the 30s, this is not even open for debate, the Democratic Party was the party of segregation and the KKK. So you might ask, why did blacks leave the party of Lincoln and emancipation and join the party of the Klan? And the short answer is, it's, a, it's kind of a sad answer, it's the terrible economic pressure of the Depression. So that even though FDR discriminated against blacks, cut them out of New Deal programs, essentially gave them crumbs. Those crumbs were more than no crumbs. And so blacks began to move over, not because of race, not because of uh, FDR was the friend of civil rights, but because of the economic benefits of the New Deal. I don't blame them, but it contradicts the progressive narrative that blacks understood who their civil rights pals were. No, that's not why blacks switched. Now, why did the South become Republican? The general narrative, again, it was, it was Nixon. It was the Southern strategy. And by the way, this narrative is so pervasive that it's taken for granted. Even Republicans believe it. A few years ago, Ken Melman, the head of the Republican National Committee, uh, went before the NAACP and apologized for the racist history of the Republican Party. Now, this is really amazing. This would be kind of like your neighbor comes to your house and steals your car. But he's able to convince you that you stole his car. And to confess that you did. This is poor Ken Melman, a dupe. But a dupe of the conventional wisdom. You can't blame Ken. He read it in his textbook. And by the way, it's really important to, to spend just a moment here to figure out how these big lies, and I'm going to get to the lie itself, how these big lies get believed. How do we come to know things that aren't true? A professor writes a book on the Southern strategy. 
Six of his colleagues claim this is the greatest book, really, since the Bible. Then the New York Review gets wind of it, and they write a favorable review. The professor is interviewed on NPR. Pretty soon, Michael Moore rolls into town and makes a documentary on the Southern strategy, exposed. Or Steven Spielberg makes a feature film. So here's my point. You're the ordinary intelligent guy, and you know it's true, because, wow, I mean, you walked into Barnes & Noble, and there was a book about it. And your professor told you about it in class. And then you turned on NPR, and there it was. And then there's Michael Moore's... So the same bullet is ricocheting off the walls, but it appears to you to be massive intellectual confirmation from, from the media and academia and Hollywood. It's got to be true. And see, the, the fact of the matter is that even if this guy in the second row knew it was false, he doesn't have a big enough megaphone to contradict that. So, the Southern strategy. The only problem with this great Southern strategy idea of Nixon making racist campaign appeals to the Deep South is no one has ever uncovered a single public racist statement that Nixon ever made. No examples of this campaign exist. So, progressives, by the way, know this. There's a fellow who's been fighting with me on Twitter. This is Kevin Cruz, the historian at Princeton. Perfect example of the progressive narrative. So Kevin goes, Dinesh, you know, I admit that Nixon didn't actually say any racist statements. What he did was he made racist dog whistles. Racist dog whistles. So the basic idea here, according to Cruz, and by the way, I'm not singling him out. I mean, this poor guy is simply uh, an echo for the conventional wisdom that reverberates through our culture. The basic idea is that Nixon went to the South and spoke in a kind of code, like a dog whistle, which apparently only racists can hear and decipher. Nobody else knows what the hell the guy's talking about. They don't even hear it. And supposedly these racists, you know, who are in reality dumber than doornails, but according to this narrative, so smart that they pick up on it, ooh, and they all then become Republicans. So I say to Cruz, well, what are these racist dog whistles? He goes, well, law and order, drugs. Now here we have to pause for a minute and, and be a little sophisticated because today, in the aftermath of Black Lives Matter and Ferguson, Missouri, and um, uh, the 90s and incarceration and three strikes and you're out, today if we say drugs, we say law and order, we think of race riots. We think of crack. In the 1970s, there was no crack. Drugs were associated with the hippies. And the big issue in the 70s was the Vietnam War. By the way, there was an anthem uh, song, popular country song, a pub in the 70s, I think it was Merle Haggard, the Okie from Muskogee. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. We don't take our trips on LSD. We don't burn our draft cards down on Main Street. We like living right and living free. That's the Nixon voter. Notice there's no reference here to being black. This is not a racial claim at all. So poor Nixon is faulted for racist appeals that he never made. Now, amazingly, Nixon, in fact, did not even campaign in the Deep South. Nixon campaigned in what he called the Sun Belt. So the Sun Belt is this great strip from Florida to California. 
It's not just the South. It includes Phoenix. It includes, it includes Tucson. It includes San Diego. Nixon was from California. Nixon's idea was that the South was becoming more urban, more industrial, more capitalist, moving away from the old plantation, and that Nixon realized, I can win the upwardly mobile, increasingly urban, non-racist vote in the South. And that's what Nixon did win. And the Deep South went to Wallace. Segregationist. Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. The Dixiecrats, an interesting group. I've made a list of them. There are about 200 of them. Uh, there's, about, um, uh, there's a bunch of senators, maybe about 25. Uh, congressmen, about 100. A bunch of governors, and then other prominent officials. These are the Dixiecrats. I count them because they either joined the Dixiecrat Party movement, or they voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That's how I count the Dixiecrats. And now I ask this question. How many of the Dixiecrats became Republicans? The answer is one guy, one guy, Strom Thurmond. He was a Dixiecrat, he became a Republican, but all the other Dixiecrats lived and died in the Democratic Party. They stayed there and they were lionized there. And this brings me back to people like Robert Byrd and LBJ, because here's something really interesting. We've got all these Antifa guys, Black Lives Matter activists, left-wingers, and they're rampaging through the South, pulling down monuments. Oh, we've got to pull down the monument of the Confederate soldier, champion of slavery. Anybody who knows an ounce of history will tell you that the ordinary Confederate soldier was most likely a dirt-poor farmer or laborer. He did not own a single slave. Asked why he was fighting in the Civil War, his answer was something like, because the Yankees are down here. And this guy's become the great villain of American history. We're really scared of the Confederate soldier. Let's make him the bad guy. Notice, nobody's pulling down Robert Byrd statues in West Virginia. Longtime member of the Ku Klux Klan. Bill Clinton and Obama were at his funeral, speaking at his memorial service. Or LBJ. I mean, here you've got the LBJ. I mean, one-third of the campus is named after LBJ. And you might say, well, wait a minute, you know, I mean, come on, Dinesh, I mean, LBJ went here. I mean, Debbie went here, but one-third of the campus is not named after her. <laughs> now, you might say, wait a minute, but, you know, but, you know, Debbie didn't pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Yeah, but neither was Debbie in the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> so my point is, my point is, notice that this legacy is not even called into question. Not even called into question. Now, the Democratic Party has undergone a very interesting metamorphosis. All party histories have continuity and they have change. But I would argue that the Democratic Party, even now, is based on the old plantation. Except the plantations now aren't rural, they're urban. You might say, well, Dinesh, are you, what, are you talking about the inner city? Are you talking about blacks again? No, I'm not just talking about blacks. I'm talking about ghettos, barrios, Native American reservations, slums. I'm talking about the fact that the Democratic Party is organized even today, as it always was, on an ethnic basis. And the ethnic basis is round up the ethnic group and get them to deliver the vote for us. 
the true ancestor of LBJ is actually not the southern slave holder. It's the northern Democrat, Martin Van Buren, who invented what can be called the northern plantation. So here's something very interesting. Van Buren, by the way, was uh, Andrew Jackson's successor. Andrew Jackson, the founder of the Democratic Party, the architect of Jackson's victories. But Van Buren was a northerner, a New Yorker. Um, and Van Buren built this alliance of the Democratic Party between the slave plantation and the northern urban machine, what later came to be called Tammany Hall, the urban bosses. But see, what is not known, and this is the part that brings the whole story to life, is Van Buren modeled the northern machine on the slave plantation. Why? Van Buren went south many times. Uh, he would talk, he would conspire with Calhoun, he'd conspire with Ritchie, the guy who was head of the, the Richmond Junto. Anyway, Van, when Van Buren noticed that in the north, you don't have slaves, but you have immigrants. And the immigrants are a lot like slaves. They're poor, they're desperate, they don't speak the language, they're confused, they're in a new country. And so Van Buren said, I have an idea. I can't make the old slave plantation, there's no support in the north for slavery. But in, if, but in slavery, if one man, A, robs the labor of another man, B, Van Buren said, I have a better scheme. If I'm A, and the immigrant is B, why don't I make a deal with that guy? He's desperate. And I'm going to ask him for something that costs him nothing, his vote. And in exchange, I can offer him a job, an apartment, free food, a turkey dinner, a flask of whiskey. The whole arrangement works kind of like this. A and B make a deal to rob C. C is the taxpayer. And so the idea is, you vote for me, I'll get into power and loot the treasury, I'll keep most of it for myself, but I'll give some of it to you. This is the northern urban machine, notorious, run by these bosses who openly looted the treasury. The only innovation of the Democratic Party in the 20th century was to take this old machine which was run out of cities, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, and nationalize it. So that instead of the local ripoff, you basically get the federal ripoff. The federal government substitutes for the old bosses, except you now have one great boss, LBJ, Obama, Bill Clinton, the same deal is operating. I'll close with this, and now I'll open the door to questions. Um, in his great work on slavery, um, Kenneth Stamp, the historian, identified the five features of the old plantation. Number one, dilapidated housing. Number two, broken families, naturally, because the slavery is not legal for the slaves. I mean, the family is not legal in any slave state. Number three, a high degree of violence necessary to hold the place together. Not surprising, because slavery is based on force. Number four, no one gets ahead. Everybody is like frozen intergenerationally in the same place. And five, a kind of mood or atmosphere of nihilism and despair. And the remarkable thing is that, again, fast forward today, and take a walk. I don't just mean in Oakland or, Balt or Baltimore or St. Louis. Take a walk on the Pine Ridge. Indian Reservation in South Dakota. Or take a, take a walk in the barrios that Debbie grew up in, in, in South Texas, in the, area, in, in the Rio Grande Valley. What do you see? Dilapidated housing, broken families, 
a high degree of violence, cops everywhere. Uh, you know, no one gets ahead. It's somehow all trillions of dollars of money get spent, but the place never gets fixed. It always remains the same. Uh, thus always creating the need for more. And finally, this atmosphere of nihilism and despair. There it is. All these years later, the same features today as they were before. So, you know, we're arguing now about Trump. We're arguing about the future of America. Uh, to me, we have fake news, but we also have fake history, and we have fake scholarship. And the nice thing about being alive today is that you don't have to take my, if you heard this talk from mine 20 years ago, you'd be like, Dinesh is crazy. I mean, I don't even read this kind of nonsense in the National Review or in the Weekly Standard. I mean, not even conservatives talk like this. So he's got to be wrong. He's got to be lying. Why else haven't I heard it elsewhere? So the reason I, I have tried to litter my talk with just specific telling facts is because those facts are by and large checkable inside of the space of one minute of searching on your phone. Like, how many Dixocrats became Republicans? Google, 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 boom, there it is. Oops, Dinesh was right. Name Republicans who own slaves. Search, search, search. Oops, no one's coming up. Gee, wow. This, in fact, the, the level of debate, the way it degenerates is that every time I win a point, the progressives degenerate. So literally, the, in, my, in my last exchange on this topic, this guy, and he's a professor, he says to me, Dinesh, he goes, the only way I will accept the truth that four million slaves were all owned by Democrats is if you give me the names of all those slaves. <laughs> he goes, that, he says, you're the one who makes the claim. The burden's on you to name them. I mean, just think of the level of, of, uh, of vulgarity that we're dealing with here. This would be like saying, if you claim that six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust, give me their names. It's nonsense. This is not how history actually even works. And the fact that intelligent people are degrade themselves in this way shows you that our, our whole model is in crisis. But for you, young people, for you in an academic community, a crisis is an opportunity. So I leave you with the thought, this isn't about protecting my free, free speech. This is about protecting truth and pursuing it, the pursuit of truth. That's what Texas State is all about. That's what you're all about, I hope. That's what I try to be all about. And so with that, I want to thank you very much and open the door to discussion. Thank you very much. Okay, all right. So uh, my name is Preston Nieves. I go here at Texas State. I study political science and international relations. Um, and I sort of had a two-part question. Um, it'll be, I'll keep it quick, don't worry. Um, so the, f the first thing, I, I sort of see that there is, in some ways, like a false equivalency. Like, you're talking about this notion of you work, I eat. But in the former scenario of the slave, that's depriving someone of social mobility uh, by basically taking all their labor for the benefit of someone else. Whereas in the latter scenario, I assume you're referring to various welfare programs, taxes, etc. Um, that would be more along the lines of programs that are designed to guarantee social mobility. So my first question is, Where's the equivalency between that? And then the second question is, um, in terms of, like you talk about trillions of dollars being spent and nothing happening. Uh, that, is, that is absolutely true. Um, but uh, is, 
does, does that not just have a different root cause? Like that sounds to me like it's more along the lines of government inefficiency rather than something that's inherently wrong with a certain philosophical approach. So um, if you could explain that more, that'd be, that'd be great. Sure. Um, so take the first one. You're talking about the fact that in slavery, you're saying there's an open ripoff. One guy stealing from another, taking, his, taking in, a, in a sense his hard-earned labor. And where's the analogy with the welfare state um, in which people are being given certain guarantees? Well, the, the analogy is, is like this. In the plantation, the slave owner, who's the master, is using force to compel another guy to work against his will and taking the fruit of his earnings. We should never forget that in a democratic society, the majority is in exactly the same position. In other words, in a democratic society, imagine if there are 100 people in a room, in this room, and we take a vote, and let's say our vote is this. Here's a hardworking guy, and our vote is 95 to 1, right, to take his savings and distribute it among all of us. First of all, politically, that's very attractive because a lot more people will benefit. The only guy we're penalizing is one guy, right? So this was the FDR-LBJ model. The FDR-LBJ model was like this. The Democratic Party has to get to a majority in order to perform the ripoff. To get to a majority, we need votes. So let's get these ethnic constituencies. Notice that, by the way, the Democrats never try to persuade these ethnic groups individually. They don't go black guy by black guy and say vote Democratic. The whole idea is to get them all to do it. Let's get them as a group, okay? And the effect is exactly the same. You've got some other guy who doesn't want to pay. That's the key thing. He wouldn't give voluntarily. That's why you have to tax him. That's why you've got to extract the money out of him by force because he's not willing to part with it. It's his own earnings. He's going to try to hold on to it. You have to take it. So even though the force in our society is disguised, it's there. It's real. Uh, let me give you a small example, and, and I'll, 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 I'm not going to fully do justice to your second question, just for the, because of time. Take Social Security, right? Here's the FDR idea. Dinesh, welcome to America as a new immigrant. We've got this magnificent program to protect you in your retirement. It's called Social Security. Aren't you excited? I go FDR. I really appreciate your thinking about me so much. Thank you, but no thank you. I'm an emancipated American, and when I get old, I'm going to provide for my own security. And if I can't, I'll rely on neighbors and friends, and if they won't help me, I will die in the street. So it's an interesting offer, but I say no. What would happen? Well, what would happen would be that they would then start levying fines against me and trying to uh, force me to pay. And let's say I refused. Then. SWAT teams would surround my house with guns. And if perchance, now I can't own a gun, but let's say I did have a, a brandish a knife to protect my property, they would literally kill me. They'd shoot me. So this is, so what I'm trying to say is don't be fooled by the fact that this is, there's force here too, just as on the old plantation, disguised but real. Aiming at doing what? Aiming at extracting from me the corn that I've actually grown that I want to put into, well, my own and Debbie's mouth. So that's a brief answer to your first question. If you don't mind, I'll pass on the second one just to give other people a chance. But thank you.
Hey, I'm a former college Republican and now I'm a young Republican and I notice when I go to a lot of the meetings and stuff like it is just a bunch of older white people like what can we do to diversify the party is basically what can we do to diversify the party the most important thing you can do see the Republican Party thinks that the best thing to do is like outreach right that's not important the most important thing you could do is to take this prevailing narrative that is drunk like mother's milk by people all in, throughout our culture in fact even Asian Americans who have no interest in the democratic plantation. They don't benefit from it. They're not part of it. They don't even have one. They're the only ethnic group apart from whites who don't really have a plantation. Asian Americans have plantation overseers, which is the heads of all these Asian organizations. But there's no, there's overseers without a plantation. So then I thought to myself for a while, how did the Asian Americans like vote for Hillary? Are they, are they like out of their minds? They're capitalists, they're meritocratic, their social values are to the right of Pat Robertson. Why would an Asian American with any brains vote for a Democrat? And then it occurred to me, Asian Americans are great assimilationists, right? They're looking to assimilate in the culture, but they find themselves where? In the American University, Texas State, UT Austin. And there they hear these narratives and they assimilate to that. They assimilate to that prevailing culture. So it, this is why it's really important to break the monopoly of these views, false narratives. If you did that, then guys like Kanye get wind of it. And they go, I smell a rat. I'm being conned. And that is the beginning of knowledge. Okay. Hi, um, my name's Julia. I'm a sophomore studying political science. And you talked a lot about how uh, the Democratic Party has like tricked the minority groups into relying on them, relying on government welfare. Well, so nowadays, what would you say kind of policies that are to be supported to revert this whole government reliance, especially the, um, on the blacks and the Hispanic communities and like inner cities and all that? Well, the simple fact is that, that if you live in the inner city, um, even if you wanted to succeed, Let's say you really want to, I'm not, I'm not saying that the inner city blacks don't want to work. They do want to work, but there's no place to work. There are hardly any jobs. If you want to be an entrepreneur, it's like welcome to the drug trade. That's the best place to be entrepreneurial in some of these terrible neighborhoods. Um, now, what I'm arguing is that that is, I'm not saying it's by design in the sense that somebody planned it that way. But it is by design in the sense that the Democratic Party, which runs all these places, by the way, there's no Republican that runs any of these neighborhoods, um, they don't want it to change. And the reason they don't want it to change is here's a place that's delivering 95% of its vote. Not, not just to Obama, to any Democrat who's on the ticket. You can put a Klansman on the ticket, and he'd get 90% of the vote. So the Democrats have an arrangement that suits them fantastically. So what's the solution? The solution basically is you have to, it's like the old plantation, you have to break it up. You have to liberate it. Now you don't, you don't have to liberate it by force, but you liberate it literally by transforming it. You create incentives for jobs. Now, if you want businesses to go there, you have to provide security, because they're not gonna even open a store if it's gonna be robbed the next day. So you, you, you essentially create entre entrepreneurial zones in the inner cities, you have to improve education. And that means breaking a, a public school monopoly. 
uh, that, that the standards in those schools are so bad that essentially you will come out learning nothing or close to nothing. So th this is a dysfunctional culture. When I was thinking about the urban plantation, it hit me that this, these places in America are frankly the worst places to grow up on the planet. Now I, I know what I'm saying because I grew up in India, I, I grew up in a neighborhood that's like slumdog millionaire. And, but you take a kid from slumdog millionaire out of the slums, true, that place is infested with crime, true. But you take that kid and you move him into a different environment and you give him access to education and the chance of a job, that guy's gonna be okay. He has the work ethic, he has the infrastructure that will, he just doesn't have opportunity. Whereas what's been created in the, in the inner cities is intergenerational dependency. And that is no different on the Native American reservations. So that has to be broken. Okay, next question. Hello, Dinesh. Very nice to see you. Uh, my name is Gabriel Leitao. I'm a physics and math student. Uh, I've been following your work for eight years and I, I love everything you've done. Um, I just want to start with a quote real quick. He who controls the past controls the future. He who controls the present controls the past. George Orwell, 1984. I think there's a very prevalent theme in all the work that you do and I think that's the importance of language. I think we allow the left to control certain words in the narrative and in doing so they can change history. Just like Newspeak in 1984 keeps shrinking and our vocabulary shrinks and we can't criticize the things we're supposed to criticize, I wanna ask you this. Which words have we allowed them to redefine and how can we win back that narrative so we can not allow them to rewrite history? Very good question about words and language. Um, a lot of these narratives are distorted precisely through a very cunning deployment of words. Hitler was a right-winger. This is widely taught. Many people believe it. If you look up Wikipedia, Hitler's a right-winger. Right-wing in that context does not mean what we mean by right-wing. Um, the terms right and left, by the way, go back to the French Revolution. In the French Revolution, if you were for the French Revolution, you sat on the left, you were a left-winger. If you opposed the French Revolution, you sat on the right. The people who sat on the right were the party of, you could call them, throne and altar. The alliance between the church and the aristocracy or the monarchy. That is right-wingness, European style. But in America, being right-wing means we are conserving, we're conservatives, we're conserving what? The principles of the American Revolution. So we're not right-wing in that sense. In, in the European sense, Bismarck, who was essentially a welfare state socialist, is a right-winger. So this is one clever use of language that distorts. I'll give another, which is more to our topic. And here I'm naming, I, I love to name names here because there's no point slamming unnamed people. <coughs> um, I only like to slam named people and important people. There are some people who are n not important enough for me to slam. Um, <laughs> Eric Foner, progressive historian, the leading scholar alive on Reconstruction. So Eric Foner is extremely cunning. He knows exactly what the Republican Party did. He knows exactly what the Democratic Party did. He's written a 700-page book on Reconstruction. But when it comes to the roll call vote on the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, he goes dead silent. Right? Why? Because when it comes to the 13th Amendment, this is after the Civil War. We're voting to, f to free the slaves. 85% of the Democrats vote no. 
And you think, well, yeah, that's because they're Southerners and they're really bitter. No, the Southerners couldn't vote. They weren't in the union. It, this is only Northern Democrats, 85% of whom voted against freeing blacks in the North. And then comes the 14th Amendment, granting equal rights under the law. The Democratic vote on this, I don't remember the exact number of Democratic House and Senate, but whatever it was, it was that number to zero. Every Democrat voted against the 14th Amendment. Every Democrat voted against the 15th Amendment. Foner knows this, he suppresses it. What does he do? He introduces language. He starts calling the Southerners, who are trying to revive the plantation, conservatives. So suddenly, the word conservative is now deployed to describe a Southern slaveholder who wants to get his plantation back. And somehow the implication is left, although never explicitly said, that somehow Abraham Lincoln was a progressive. He was a liberal, even though Lincoln repeatedly states I am a conservative, in those words exactly. And Lincoln, Lincoln argues, he goes, I am conserving the principles of the founders and the Republican Party in the 1850s, says Lincoln, wants nothing more than what the founders wanted in the 1780s. So this is a really good example of how the terms conservative and liberal are redeployed to invert their actual meaning. Okay, so that's just an example of what you were saying. Next question. Good evening. I have read many of your books. I'm very appreciative of your work. You mentioned that you have a no, new book coming out. I was hoping you would tell us about it. The new book is uh, called Death of a Nation, and it, it accompanies a movie of the same title, Death of a Nation. Uh, the movie will be released, I believe, August 3rd in a thousand theaters around the country. So it will be playing here, everywhere. Um, and I typically do a book which, which has the intellectual spade work uh, of the movie. So the book is an argument, the movie is a narrative. A lot of times, and for a lot of people, these truths are difficult to grasp intellectually. They need to be seen, and they need to be experienced. In a movie, you experience it with your eyes, your ears, your heart. Uh, and so the reason I make movies is because I, I, I'm trying to sort of, you could almost say, put music to the words and reach an audience that would be wider than the audience that would merely... Uh, in a sense, when I've been talking about the liberal megaphones, I'm trying to build my own megaphone. Um, and, 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 and Debbie and I realized long term to do that, we have to do not only documentaries, we have to do feature films. Because Hollywood's messages are in romantic comedies, and they're in animated family movies, and they're in thrillers, and so on. So that's, uh, that's coming, but look for it um, this summer. It's um, going to be lively. Okay, next question. Dinesh and Debbie, thank you so much for providing us the ammunition so that we can be weaponized. We greatly appreciate it. Um, let's say that the Korean War ends. Who should be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize? <laughs> Dennis Rodman or Little Rocket Mun? You know, a, a couple of things come to mind about all this, and um, um, Reagan and Gorbachev. Gorbachev was actually the leader of what Reagan had called the evil empire. And, and notice that Reagan did not pamper Gorbachev. Reagan actually attacked him. 
Uh, even in person, Gorbachev came to see Reagan and the whole Soviet Union was crumbling. And Gorbachev says to Reagan, I'm standing on a precipice, what should I do? And Reagan, take one step forward. <laughs> Reagan's advice to Gorbachev, which to his great credit, he did, he did. So if I had to hand out the Nobel Prize that year, I would have given it to Reagan and Gorbachev, both. Um, I'm a little more hesitant to give it to Kim Jong-un. Um, but I am trying to wrap my head over what's been happening here, right? I mean, first of all, you've got, you know, you've got uh, sophisticated Obama, right? Obama's like, oh, I got this, I got this. Um, this is this is simple matter. It's you know it's it's like the distinction between ISIS and ISIL. Once we get that ex get that distinction right, the Middle East is a cinch. Um, and uh, and then Obama steps out, and in comes this guy Trump. And you know, and on the face of it, Trump's behavior is a little whacked, right? Okay, Kim Jong Un, you got in your car. I'm gonna get in my car. Okay, let's go at it. You know, let's let's play chicken. Let's see who drives off the road first. Vroom, you know, you've got a button. I got a bigger button. <laughs> so, you can just see like the D.C. sophisticates, you know, including Republicans. They're like, you know, this is not the the model that we've been talking about <laughs> in dealing. We need we need a, a combination of carrots and sticks. And then the damnedest thing happens. I mean, this alleged loon, Kim Jong-un, caves. I don't know the reasoning in his head. It may go something like this. I'm crazy, but that guy's even crazier than I am. Um, I don't know. <laughs> but let's just say that if, if they pull it off, a Nobel Prize for Trump would be a small price to pay for a hist an historic by anyone's account achievement. Uh, hi Dinesh, uh, my name is Steven, I'm a senior here at Texas State. Uh, I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, Hillary's America was like one of the best documentaries I've ever seen in my life. And um, I've been to several kinds of functions like this and um, like my question is, have you ever been asked a question that you didn't have the answer to? You know, the reason I write books is because I try to become the world's expert on my own topic, you know? It's a little bit like when I, like last year I got the Razzie Award. The Razzie Award is for being the worst actor in America. I edged out De Niro. Um, but, but the Razzie made no sense to me because in Hillary's America, as you know, I was playing myself. So I'm obviously the world's expert at being me, right? So my acting has got to be world-class. Uh, now, I'm being facetious, but no, it is true that in talking, not just on politics, but sometimes even in my work on Christian apologetics, someone will throw something at me that I've never heard before, and it, it throws me off. I remember the, the example that jumps to mind is when I was debating Christopher Hitchens on the issue of God. And he made the example, he argued, that the belief in life after death is wishful thinking. That the believer invents another world in order to compensate for the difficulties of this world. And that explains why there's the belief in the afterlife, although it's nothing more, he says, than Freud's 
this was an argument Kitchens got from Freud in The Future of an Illusion, that the belief in God is projection, it's wishful thinking. And when I first heard that, I didn't know how to counter it. Uh, and so I had to sort of go back to the drawing board, scratch my head. But I could counter it, but fortunately with Hitchens, I, we did like eight debates, so there's usually round two. And round, so when round two comes along, Hitchens goes, oh, I got him last time, so let's try it again. So he throws the same punch, wishful thinking. But this time I thought about it. So I'm like, actually, Christopher, that doesn't really work. Because if you're a believer and you're trying to invent a better life, you would most certainly come up with the idea of heaven. Because heaven is the best, right? It's the perfect life. No sickness, no suffering, no hardship. But I go, but the problem is that in the Christian scheme, there's also this other idea, hell. That's not wishful thinking. That's a lot worse than diabetes. <laughs> no one would, would want to make that one up. So now I get to hit the ball back into his court. You explain why a believer who's trying to console himself with the prospect of a better future would invent so dispiriting an idea as hell. And I think it was a good counterpunch because his response, somewhat under his breath, was something like, shit. <laughs> uh, so these debates go like that. And I don't claim not to have won them all, but I, I claim that when I hear something, I'll then think about it and try to come back the next time around. Okay? Hey, Dinesh, thank you for all you do. Just to start off, my name is Jordan Cook. I'm an economics major. Um, and I wanted to ask you, I'm personally conservative, and that's what my beliefs have been my whole life. And it's really hard to do that, especially being African-American, and most of the racism I've received isn't from any white person. It's been from fellow African-Americans who don't understand. So what advice would you give to me and other younger uh, minorities who want to be conservative? My advice is this. Um, don't try to strike the middle ground because that's where you'll be battered the most. Um, oddly enough, you're almost like, when, when I came as an immigrant to America, it was like a tightrope between two buildings. So here's India, building number one, and here's America, building number two. And as I walk on the tightrope, I realize I'm sort of leaving India, right? But I'm not in America. And so at some point, I'm in this no man's land where I'm feeling really dizzy and insecure. And I don't know if I should run back or go forward, right? Um, becoming an American for me was that moment of resolution where I said, I'm going to go forward. So Debbie and I sort of, we independently made that same journey. We decided to throw ourselves into it because it's actually more freeing that way. So similarly here, it's like there's a big sea change coming in the culture. You happen to be at the front of it. So you're going to take a lot of, of, of fire. And all I'm saying is it's, it's, it's up to people like you to keep going and go forward and be really brave because you'll be, you'll be opening the ground for a lot of other people. This is why I hope that Kanye succeeds because he's got the reach and, and he's got the power. I mean, he's, he's, he, he can afford to be fearless, but there's, a there's going to be a tremendous effort to beat him down because it's really hard to portray him as an Uncle Tom. So, so there's going to be a big effort to, to change him, and there's going to be a big effort to change you. 
So I'm saying resist it, be brave, go forward. Hey, Dinesh. Uh, maybe I'm drawing my own parallels on this, but you kind of mentioned FDR's New Deal, passing crumbs down to blacks and other people of color. Do you, do you think Donald Trump's tax reform is kind of doing the same thing, but for the working class and trying to convert vo voters over to, to con you know, the Republican Party? And well, let's just back up for a second, and let's look at what Trump is dealing with in terms of the white working class, or the working class generally, because yeah. the, the, this applies across the board. We have basically been in a perfect storm for about 50 years of three uh, typhoonic winds that have been blowing, all in the same direction. Globalization, immigration, technology, right? And so all kinds of things, all kinds of jobs, all kinds of industries that were once thriving in America have been decimated by these three gale forces. And again, notice that they operate the same way. In other words, whether my job is made obsolete by Expedia, because people can now book online, or whether it's made obsolete because some guy in Thailand has it, or whether some other guy is willing to do it for less, it's the same thing. The effect on me is the same. So here's the thing. The Democratic Party, which claims to be the champion of the working guy. Let's ask, what are their solutions to these three things? Globalization, no solution. Technology, no solution. Immigration, let's have more. If anything, the problems are gonna become worse, and they have become worse. So Trump, I think, is at least trying. It's not easy, I wouldn't know what, I wouldn't know what to do. But he's trying, in a couple ways. First of all, Trump is saying, look, I'm not against free trade, but it's not fair if, if Japanese cars that come over here get no tariffs and our cars sold over there have 30% tariffs. I'm gonna threaten to put some tariffs over here, not because I like tariffs, but to make you take down your tariffs. And then, of course, you know, the Milton Friedmanites jump up and go, oh, he's against free trade. No, he's using political leverage to get free trade. So, but this trade issue is really important to jobs. Uh, second, immigration. The reason Trump is on the immigration issue is not because he doesn't like immigrants. Uh, Trump's line is between the legal and the illegal immigrant. And, and America takes a lot of legal immigrants, and most of them are non-white. And Trump has never said, oh, you know what, I, I just want legal immigrants from New Zealand, you know, and Iceland, and I just don't want anyone, anyone else coming from Barbados or Bombay. No, Trump doesn't say that. He wants more skilled immigrants, uh, but Trump wants to address illegal immigration. And, um, and so I think he's doing his best in a very difficult environment um, in order to try to increase jobs and opportunity for working people. So the effort has to be commended. Whether he will succeed remains to be seen. Well, I want you to think about that for a moment, what was said. And I want you to really take the time to understand the reason behind all that. That makes you wonder, okay, this here is serious. This is a problem that's going on in our society. But let's say here, I'm going to talk about this in the next week's broadcast on um, the Biblical Editorial Review. 
in the name, of course, of course, it is something is very direct. Now, I'm going to share a lot of this. This broadcast going to be broadcast, of course, our regular time. But I want to share it with people about it. And the main reason why I want to share this is because we want to expose the corruption on the far left. Because I'm going to break it down on every level that a lot of people probably never will even imagine. And that is the far left, how they do. Also, now, people always want to say, well, you got your white nationalists, white supremacists, your neo-Nazis, your KKKs, your aerial nations, your black uh, uh, supremacists, your Black Lives Matter, your Black Panthers, your Black Israelites. And you got all these mixture of individuals in different progressive and terrorist groups that are in this one party. One party. One party. And that is the Democrat Party. That nobody never really sit there and think about. No one never really sit down thinking about because they always thinking that these people are separate. No, they fight for the same party to try to regain it. Blacks, Caucasians, Asians, you name it, who are with well-minded of truth need to really come to grips that these people of different ethnic groups have hate certain ethnic groups. No, this is the main reason why you guys need to wake up. And we're going to wake you up. For the next couple weeks, we're going to expose the stuff. And we're going to put it out there so people could understand why this is happening. So, I want you to be blessed in the Lord and stay true. We got a lot more to come by exposing these people for who they are. Thank you for listening to the Biblical Editorial Review. We hope this broadcast has challenged you to see this world from God's perspective. Tune in next time for another Biblical Editorial Review. The Biblical Editorial Review is copyright by the Resilient Christian Radio Network.